Welcome to the eBook Revolution podcast. I'm Emily Craven, bringing you interviews on writing, publishing, transmedia, book marketing, and the eBook Revolution. The companion website is ebookrevolution.blogspot.com. Enjoy the show. Hi guys, Emily Craven here from eBook Revolution Podcast. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining me for this special mini edition podcast. Now, some of you may not know, I'm actually primarily a fantasy author and I was given a grant uh, from the South Australian Government through the Clark Carclu Youth Arts Board to attend the World Fantasy Convention in Toronto. Now, I'm very excited about this and I thought, what a great thing to do to chat to some of the world fantasy authors that I will be meeting and to give you guys a little bit of an insight into the life of a writer, how they go about avoiding procrastination and getting their words out and the sort of projects that they're working on to, to help you get a little bit inspired from uh, other writers. So uh, these are, podcasts are special in the fact that they're, as I said, mini and uh, what we'll be doing is I will be asking each author 10 questions in 20 minutes or at least that's the aim. I haven't managed 20 minutes yet but fingers crossed by the end of these uh, series we'll get there. I hope very much that you uh, enjoy these and that they inspire you. And if you're interested in fantasy, I have a blog, theoriginalfantasy.blogspot.com.au, where I talk about the lessons I learnt from uh, world-famous fantasy author Isabel Carmony. So please feel free to check that out as well. That's where the majority of the World Fantasy Convention podcasts will be posted. Once again, thanks very much for joining me, and make sure you watch out for the bonus mystery question at the end of the podcast. Hi everybody, it's Emily Craven here from the Original Fantasy blog. Thank you very much for joining us for another uh, 10 questions in 20 minutes. Now today we are talking with the a wonderful fantasy action writer Mike Cole. Now uh, Mike used to be a uh, security contractor, uh, government civilian and military officer, so he's done all three. Uh, and he has uh, done a whole heap of things that include counterterrorism, cyber warfare, uh, federal law enforcement. Uh, he's also done three tours in Iraq, so he really knows what he's talking about when he's doing those action scenes. Um, and uh, lucky for us, he's also gone into uh, writing and writing some fantastically high-paced, uh, well, I would kind of call them thriller fantasies. Uh, some, uh, one of the reviewers has uh, likened it to Black Hawk Down Meets. X-Men, uh, and if you ever go and, and read the start of the, the blurb for the books, which I highly recommend, it starts off as Army Officer, Fugitive, Sorcerer, and really, who can resist that? So, uh, Mike has written the two Shadow Ops books, and um, thank you very much for, for joining us, Mike. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure, and uh, as I said, I love that first line, the Army Officer, Fugitive, Sorcerer, it's just it's a great, great catch line. Thanks. Uh, I mean, it's it's a good uh, good description, uh, I think, for what the book's about. Well, Ken, we suppose we'll try and dive right in, and let's see whether I can I can do this twenty minutes thing because I've gone way over with everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to let you do that, Emily. I I, I, I'm <laughs> a, I'm, I really do enjoy hearing myself talk, and uh, and uh, a twenty minute time constraint is uh, is really going to get in the way of that. <laughs> well, um. Let's dive straight into it. Can you tell us how you got into fantasy writing? Um, through fantasy reading. Uh, I think that most fantasy writers start out as fans. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I, I don't think I know any that didn't. 
And uh, I grew up on a steady diet of fantasy novels, uh, Tolkien, Terry Brooks, uh, Piers Anthony, and comic books and Dungeons and Dragons and all of the things that I think most fantasy fans are into. And I, writing was, I think, the thing I was good at. Uh, my mom told me from a very young age, you're no good at math and science. Uh, you're only good at, at, um, at literature and, and reading and writing and, and those kinds of pursuits, and I believed her. And that's what I poured my energy into. And when you're good at something, it comes a little easier, or rather when you are exposed to something, it comes a little easier to you. And, uh, and so sort of one thing fed to the other. And how did you go from from all of these? Uh, I suppose uh, I I think in my mind of them as fast paced. But how did you go from all of those sort of fast paced um, military, you know, tours in Iraq to to doing your writing? Um, I think that I mean it's sort of it's sort of inevitable that I would write the Shadow Ops series when you look at the influences in my life. I mean, I I started out as a nerd playing Dungeons and Dragons in my mom's basement. <laughs> And I think Dungeons and Dragons allowed me to imagine myself as a warrior. You know, I was a skinny, pasty, uh, nerdy kid coming up without a lot of physical power and, and socially not well, well put together, I think, like a lot of nerds. And I sort of began to imagine myself, fantasize about myself as another person through role-playing games and through fantasy novels. And I, of course, fantasized about myself as the thing I was not, big and strong and tough. And that led to a fascination with all things military. I think my mother didn't think that fantasy was a serious occupation, so she tried to get me involved in history. And I remember she took me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City to see the arms and armor here. And so I became obsessed with knights and armor and fascinated by them. And the modern evolution of a knight in today's day and age, is a military officer, the officer class in all militaries. That's the military aristocracy of the modern world. And my interest in fantasy and science fiction and comic books and role-playing games never waned. And my interest in all things military never waned. And I think the two sort of came on a joint trajectory, and then what you get is a military fantasy novel written about sorcerers in the army. And I, I just sort of when I think back at my coming up, it, it sort of makes sense. It sort of seems impossible. It could have turned out any other way. <laughs> yeah, well, um, it, it it also makes me really interested to to know how you you got your big break. Um, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, there is no big break. That's a, I think a misconception in in writing. There's no big break. There's bashing your head against the wall for decades. That's what it is. Um, until someone finally goes, well, okay. Uh, the reality of it is, is that I um, worked my butt off for, I mean, I wrote all my life, but I was close friends with Peter V. Brett, um, and he had a very successful debut novel, The Warded Man in Australia, excuse me, The Painted Man in Australia, The Warded Man in the United States, which is just a fantastic fantasy novel. And, and if you folks haven't read it, I, I really recommend it. The sequel... The Desert Spear is out, and the um, sequel to that, The Daylight War, is coming in uh, in the end of January, beginning of February of um, 2013. And, um, you know, I watched his success, and it really galvanized me. But even from that point on, it was years of, of you know, nights and weekends 
writing and and not going to parties and not dating and not doing the things that that people do after work uh, and constantly sending that stuff off to my agent and getting it rejected and trying to make it better. And I wouldn't say there was a big break. I think there was a point where I wrote, I was writing at a level of quality that was at the professional level. But even then, you still have to write the right book at the right time for the right editor. And all of those things came together. So I don't like the term of classifying it as a big break. I, I prefer the, 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 the picture of a person who's being really, really, really persistent over a really, really, really long period of time. May I ask how you um, you got your agent? Was it just a, a traditional you sort of a sent your manuscript or you your stuff to them and 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 they picked you up that way? No, no, I, I stalked him, um, plain and simple. I I believe um, that the only way you could make it as a writer is that you had to you had to go a certain pre uh, pre planned route. You had to win Writers of the Future, the L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future contest. You had to use that credential on a cover letter to get the major short story magazines to take you seriously. You had to sell a few short stories to the major magazines. From this, you got membership in CIFWA. That got you into the right parties. And then you met an agent. And I followed that course exactly. And there are many writers, including Peter Brett, who did not, who, who just wrote a great novel and and got an agent and, and made it happen that way. Uh, but I went to a party hoping to meet uh, Joshua Bilmas. I knew him uh, by reputation from other people, and I met him at the party, and he's a very savvy networker, and he knows what people want when they talk to him at industry parties. So I specifically and deliberately avoided discussing writing with him. I just talked about life and movies and theater and film, and we stayed up until three in the morning at Philcom talking about those things. And by the end of the, that time, I had become good friends with him. And I had forgotten that I was there to pitch him a manuscript. In the end, he gave me my, his card and I wound up sending him a manuscript, which he rejected. And we, but we maintained a friendship, a fast friendship. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going to call him and say hi when I get done with this. Uh, for many, many years, even when I was taking breaks and writing, and not sending him manuscripts, and really had told myself in my head that I was that I was not going to make it as a writer. We, you know, he would come visit me in D.C. and we would hang out. And uh, he's my agent, but he's he's my friend first. I'm not sure if that's the usual path or not, but I, I really don't think there is a usual path in professional writing. No, no, and that's that's um, you, you get a lot of uh, emerging writers. I hear a lot of emerging writers saying that to people. You know, how do, how do you go about doing? It? How do you go about getting to the success? And and everybody, everyone has gone a different path. They all have a different path, but like the only one sure thing you can do to be successful as a writer, if that's your goal, is write a killer book. You have to write an amazing book, and it has to be the best thing ever, and it has to blow everybody's socks off. And there's just no way around that. And I hear a lot of questions about networking, and I hear a lot of questions about marketing, and I hear a lot of questions about social media and what parties to go to, and on and on and on. And all of those things are important, and all of those things will help. But in the end, if you are a complete social misfit, and you never get on the internet, and you write an incredible, incredible book, and someone in the industry who makes their living recognizing these things, I firmly believe that, that it will be recognized and it will be picked up. Mm. 
Yeah, that's 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 a good point. Just write the damn thing. <laughs> well, well, don't just write the damn thing. Uh, it's one thing, you know. I'll give you the perfect example. Um, I've just, I mean, I finished the first draft of my third novel, Breach Zone, the third book in my Shadow Ops series, a while ago. Um, it's written. I wrote the damn thing, but it's not good enough yet. Um, one of the other things you have to do is hold your own feet to the fire and really look at your own work critically and solicit the opinions of people you trust and be willing to say to yourself, this isn't good enough, this isn't good enough, up and to and including throwing away large portions of your manuscript or even the whole thing. Mm, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Thank you. I, uh, I've been working on that one. <laughs> um, may, may I ask what a typical day is for you? Uh, you may, but I, I can't give you an answer. Uh, there is no typical day. Um, you have to kill me? No, I don't have to no. kill you. Someone else would have to kill you. We have a department that handles work. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, you know, I, no, there is no typical day. Um, I have all kinds of um, social obligations, marketing obligations. Um, I am still a reservist, uh, and I'm a reservist at, in my opinion, the busiest, or certainly one of the busiest units in the entire service the entire Coast Guard, so, you know, I, I, uh, I wish it was more regular and more uh, disciplined and more locked down, but the truth is, some days I get no writing done, some days I have all day to write, some days, you know, I'm able to get up and treat it like a desk job and, and be, you know, at the coffee shop or the library, you know, for however many hours, um, and some days I can't. And there are also always uh, family and social obligations that, that interfere. Now, I know there are writers that are that treat it like an office job and that um, pick themselves up, you know, that wake, get themselves out of bed, make their coffee, and are at their desk by whatever, 9 a.m. and write until 5, um, and that's maybe very effective for them. And there are days I do that, and, and I certainly can see the value in that. And the thing I think that was tough for me is that because I present this, ooh, tough military guy image, I think a lot of people expect me to have that kind of rigid, disciplined um, lifestyle. And uh, I, I do at times, but the truth is, a lot of times I don't. Uh, you, you were saying there that you go out to, to libraries or coffee shops to write. Is that all the time, or do you also do your writing at home? I do both. Um, I get, you know, to be honest, I get really lonely and bummed when I write at home. Uh, I, uh, I like being around other people. And I like knowing that they're, that I'm in society and, and, uh, it, you know, I could save more money if I stayed at home and didn't go out and have Starbucks coffee. But being in an environment full of people, even if I'm not interacting with them, helps me to be less maudlin and withdrawn. And I really do think that that's something that at least social writers encounter. I know many writers are reticent and, um, loners and prefer not to be out around other people. I am not one of those people. I am enormously social and I need people and I need to talk to people and I need to be around people and the coffee shop environment really helps me uh, to do that. Now that said, I have headphones in, you know, I'm listening to music. I'm not, I'm not uh, interacting with people, but just being around them really helps. Yeah, I, I, I definitely get a, a bit of that as well. You sit inside all day and you go, oh my God, it was such a lovely day outside and I didn't go outside once. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so can you, can you give us a couple of, uh, you know, tricks? What sort of tricks do you use to apply the bum glue and avoid procrastination? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, uh, 
tricks do I use to apply the thumb glue and avoid procrastination? You know, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I procrastinate. Um, and the problem with having other obligations in my life is that uh, I, I have real and legitimate reasons to procrastinate. It's one thing to procrastinate by sitting on your computer and playing video games and watching movies and messing around. It's another thing to procrastinate by doing legitimate marketing or handling your obligations and duties as a guard officer or being there for your family or going to promotional and networking events. You know, but those things can all become procrastination if you're, uh, if you're not careful. Uh, I think the one thing I do do is I get way ahead of deadlines and I get first drafts and outlines and things done months and months and months in advance so that I have a big, big window to get in trouble with other things. An example of this is when I was writing Fortress Frontier, um, which was delivered to the publisher maybe even a month early, um, I, uh, I, I was activated to go uh, augment staff at a unit and to deal eventually with Hurricane Irene on the southern coast of New Jersey, and I was gone for two months. And uh, that did not prevent me from getting breach, uh, getting uh, Fortress Frontier in on time because I was so ahead of that deadline. And uh, as I say, I'm, I'm hammering away at Breach Zone, but I had a first draft done you know, a great deal of time ago, and it's not due for, for some time. I think the way procrastination costs me is less in the main projects I'm under contract for and more in my ability to do side projects. I look at guys like Chuck Wendig. I look at um, authors like Dale Carragher, um, Anna Geary, Shiloh Walker, you know, people who are putting out consistently, Kevin Hearn, two books a year, and you know, novellas and short stories in between them. And uh, I often feel like a, a real slacker compared to those people in that if I and get down on myself uh, wishing I, I, I produced at a greater rate, but in the end, you know, you produce what you produce. And for me, I think maybe I'll get better at it someday. But for me, it would be a choice between quality and speed. And, and that's just for me. I, I, there are plenty of writers who write fantastic stuff very quickly. But um, I can't make that choice. I, I can't. If I put out stuff that I'm not a thousand percent confident with, I, I, you know, my name goes on there and I really think I'll lose the, the trust of my audience. So, so when you when you say that you, you I suppose get ahead, um, you, you do things ahead of time. Is it just that whenever you have a spare moment, you just sit down and do your writing? Is that sort of how you you tend to get ahead? No, I think that I give myself permission to write a lousy first draft. I think that um, I write a core concept, sort of like a pitch page for my story, which my agent and beta readers bless, and then I write a large detailed outline of what the book is going to be which my agent and my beta readers bless. So at that point, I know that I've got a good core concept for a book, and then I turn and burn on that first draft. And I, they'll t there are times I'm writing it, and I'm like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. Uh, and I do it anyway, and I power through it, because I have that structure already in place. And I can go back and edit. I can't go back and edit nothing. <laughs> so I really think that, that that helps me get out in front of the, of the issue. That's uh, that's actually a wonderful thing because I know that I always, you know, in in my head, find myself stopping because I because I haven't been able to articulate something in, in the way that I want to, and uh, and really some sometimes I I have to do a similar sort of thing where I've got to kick myself in the butt and say doesn't matter, 
come back to it later. Well, that's, I mean, and that's great that that works for you and that, that it works for me. But that said, there are writers I know that agonize over every little sentence and are late delivering manuscripts and write the best stuff I've ever read. So I don't want people listening to this interview to think that my way or your way is the right way. Writing is an incredibly personal thing. And the fact is that pretty much all of my favorite writers to a man or woman are late delivering their manuscripts. Uh, Scott Lynch, Pat Rothfuss, George R. R. Martin, Peter Brett, all of them. I mean, I, I just love their writing so much and I'm so in awe of how good they are and, and wish I could be that good. And all of them take their time and deliver their manuscripts later than their fans want. And I personally think that that is a great idea and I think they should continue doing it. And I don't care if George R. R. Martin takes another 15 years to get me the next Song of Ice and Fire book, if that's what it takes to make sure it's the best book possible. Yeah, that's completely true. Um, what works for, for some people doesn't work for others. And, and um, I suppose everybody just needs to go at their, their own pace. It's, it's same with any job, really. No, no one ever does one thing the same way. Um, sure. It's what makes life fun. Uh, yes. <laughs> That is what makes all well, that and uh, Pocky, I think, is another thing that makes life fun. <laughs> what is that? Pocky is uh, a Japanese treat made by dipping cookie sticks in chocolate. And I think it's knowing what it is is a nerd licensing requirement. Um, I'm afraid, Emily, that that may impact negatively on your recertification in that regard. Ah, oh, man, and I was going so well. Well... You know, there's setbacks. You can't let them get you down. <laughs> um, uh, well, uh, I, was, I was going to ask you, you know, how much research do you do? But uh, you kind of live your research, don't you? No, I do a ton of research. Um, you know, the military, first of all, I, I don't just write about the military. I mean, the military is one aspect of what I write about, but there's lots of other stuff going on in the, in the story. Um, and you have to remember that the military is a gigantic, gigantic institution with you know, thousands of different facets. Uh, I don't want to provide any spoilers, but uh, there's a, 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 a huge industrial crane plays a large role in the third novel. And I don't know anything about cranes or how they're operated or what they do. And I spent a lot of time having to read crane operator manuals. Now, cranes are used in the military, and there's lots of people who, you know, there are professional crane operators in the military, but I sure don't deal with those people on a day-to-day -day basis or know anybody who I could ask. You know, so there, there's um, – I'll give you a perfect example. Um, the one Coast Guard movie that's really famous is The Guardian, um, starring Kevin Costner. And it's all about Coast Guard uh, aviation survival technicians, our rescue swimmers, aviation rescue swimmers. And people always come up to me and go, oh, so that's what the Coast Guard is like. And I always say, no. I mean, the rescue swimmers are a completely different community from the boat forces unit that I'm part of. And what we do has very little to do with them. And what they do has very little to do with us. We certainly do join ops and integrate with each other, but you know, I don't, I don't know much about that life and they don't know much about my life and the culture is different and the vocabulary is different and the, and we're still the same military. We're still in the same branch of the military. But if I was going to write about rescue swimmers, I would have a lot of research ahead of me. And how do you go about doing that research? Is it just sort of lots of visits to the library or lots of internet searches? 
It's it's yeah, it's it's lots of internet searches. Um, I uh, I can't remember the last time I checked a book out of the library, and it's also um, I mean, it, internet searches are great, but nothing beats finding a person you can ask questions of. I am a very lazy researcher. If I can just ask someone a question and not have to look it up in a book or on the internet, that is always my preferred mode. And one of the great things about fantasy is that in the end, if I need the story, if I need it to work a certain way for the story, I can just make it up. <laughs> That's what I like about fantasy as well. Uh, the, not to say that, you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't make, you know, sense. Right. It does need to make sense, right. but uh, <laughs> but but you can still make stuff up. It's okay. Yes. Um, how do you go about fleshing your ideas? Because I always ask people this because you know I I start off with a seed of an idea, and sometimes it takes a really long time to to try and flesh that out into something like a story. Yeah, I mean the 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 real challenge for me is it's easy for me to come up with a good conceit um, that's that that makes the basis for a story. What's not so easy and what's much more important is coming up with an interesting character who's in that story and has a conflict and is attempting to resolve it and deciding what makes them interesting and likable and what their journey will be. So, for example, if you say, you know, um, I don't know, uh, I did a short story once. I asked the question, uh, what if uh, elephants were intelligent and could talk and worked on construction sites? And how would they deal with the mafia that runs the unions on those construction sites? And I wrote a short story about that, which I was really, really proud of. Never sold, though. But, like, that in of itself is a conceit. What's interesting is what, 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 who is the character in that story? And what do they want? And what is their conflict? And, and how does dealing with talking, thinking elephants on a construction site impact them. Maybe an elephant took away their job because there's a quota to hire a certain number of elephants on every construction site. And how does that affect them and their relationship with their family? And that's what makes a story really cool and dramatic and interesting. And the, the fleshing out of that is the real, the real challenge. How do you handle that challenge? Oh, uh, agony, self-doubt. Drinking, um, no. Uh, <laughs> that's that's very uh, very old school writer of you. <laughs> I you know I I, uh, I steal I, I steal. Um, I uh, a, a good example, and I mentioned this in a in a prior article in Fortress Frontier, which is the book um, that uh, is coming out at the end of January, the second book in my Shadow Ops series, and the character conflict is stolen almost whole hog from the, uh, I can't remember if it's 70s or 80s movie Zulu starring Michael Caine, um, which is a true story about a, a royal engineer in the British Army who is defending at, um, I can't remember if it's Solanda or Rourke's Drift, but basically it's a hospital full of convalescents. And this royal engineer officer is sent out to survey to build a bridge. He has no experience fighting, no experience commanding men. He's a bridge builder. He happens to be wearing a uniform, but he builds bridges. And um, all of a sudden, these, I don't know, handful of mostly wounded British soldiers are surrounded by an army of tens of thousands of angry Zulus uh, who have every intent of storming that, that convalescent hospital and killing everyone there. And um, this engineering officer is the highest ranking officer. So he's in command even though he has no experience. And, and uh, he just sort of squares his shoulders, you know, stiff up a lip, we are British. 
and says, you know, I'm an officer of the Royal Engineers. I'm prepared for any eventuality. And, um, and figures it out. Uh, and holds. And I love that idea of an administrative person thrust into combat, un totally unprepared for it, and finding a way to make it work anyway. And uh, and that became the genesis of the protagonist of Fortress Frontier, Alan Bookbinder, and the struggle he eventually faces. So I guess how do I do it? I steal it, which is also <laughs> well, very also a very classic writer of me. I was, I was about to say, at least you're honest, <laughs> and and uh, and really, technically, it came from a true story. So you, I kind of call it borrowing, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, look. Uh, there are no new ideas, right? And uh, everything has been stolen from something else. I mean, people compare my work to Black Hawk Down versus the X-Men, and I have liberally, liberally stolen from both. Uh, anyone who looks at my uh, antagonist in uh, – the, uh, the, well, there's a couple of antagonists, but the, the, the and female antagonist in control in, throughout the Shadow Ops series and doesn't see influences of Captain Magneto from the X-Men – is not paying attention. I mean, I, I'm more than happy to, to steal those things, spin them my own way, and, and put my name on them. Uh, speaking uh, about your characters, which one of your characters is your favorite? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think as of now, it's got to be... Uh, um, I'd say my favorite character is Colonel Alan Bookbinder, the protagonist of the second novel, Fortress Frontier. I just love his... Um, ability to come into situations for which he's completely unprepared that are, or the odds are hopelessly stacked against him, and just square his shoulders and go, oh, well, I'm going to figure this out, and and do it. Um, and by the way, that's also a theft, right? From Frodo. <laughs> you know, this is a great, um, I'll never forget, I was having a hard time once, and I, I couldn't figure out what to do, and I was telling my brother about it. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And my brother was like, ah, you know, go ahead and, and figure it out. Just put one foot in front of the other. And I yelled at him and said, don't you see how serious this is and how the odds are stacked against me? And my brother goes, Mike, you got to remember Frodo. You've got to remember Frodo. Here is a, whatever, three-foot-tall hobbit, you know, the weakest of all species, whose only sidekick is a fat gardener, and he has the ring of power, the most, you know, evil and powerful item in the universe, around his neck slowly killing him. The eye of Sauron, of the most powerful evil god in the world, is always on him, searching for him. He's being read, led by a treacherous uh, creature bent on his destruction through the misty marches, marshes. He has hundreds of thousands of both red-eye Barad-dur and white-hand uh, Isengard Uryx and Oryx between him and the Cracks of Doom. There's just no way there's no way he's getting that ring into that volcano. It is not happening. And he just puts one foot in front of the other, and sometimes you win. That's great. I really like that analogy. And, I, you know, when, when you put all of those story elements together and you go, yeah, man, Tolkien screwed him over. Yeah, and, and, he, and, he, <laughs> and he made it happen. And you know what is so funny? Is that, that was this big cathartic conversation that totally changed my life. And later, years later, I went to my brother and I was like, man, you remember when you told me that whole thing? And he goes, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
<laughs> didn't remember it all. It meant nothing to him. Uh, so, so would Frodo be your favorite fictional character then? Uh, one of them. Uh, gosh, uh, that's a really tough one. Um, you know, I, it's, I can't pick a single favorite fictional character. I mean, I love Wolverine. I love Tony Stark. I love Captain America. Um, I love Arlen Bales. I love um, Arya. So you would have loved the Avengers then? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Fabulous, fabulous movie. Yeah, no, I was a, I'm a huge Avengers fan. And my nickname in every place I've ever worked has been Captain America. Nice. Yeah. Favorite, favorite superhero. In fact, it was pretty funny. Uh, back when I was um, working as a, a federal civilian, I had a government contractor in the next cube where I really liked. And I decked out my whole cube as um, Cap- with Captain America stuff. And then I decked out his whole cube with Iron Man stuff because Tony Stark is a government contractor. Um, and I don't even think he was a comic book fan, but I literally festooned his cube with Iron Man paraphernalia and comic books. And like a good sport, he kept it there for a couple of years. Oh, nice. I don't know if he ever read it. But... <laughs> uh, what idea are you most excited about at the moment to turn into a story? Ooh, um, I actually have a new novel pitch, which uh, I've gone off to my agent, and uh, my editor seems really interested in it, and I'm hopeful that we're going to be moving forward uh, with that. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, but suffice to say that it's close to what Shadow Ops does in the fact that it's a military fantasy with the modern military, but it has a more occult uh more occult and less of a high fantasy system to it. But I, I do think that it's close enough to Shadow Ops that readers of the current series will really like it and different enough that it'll pull in some new people. Awesome. That sounds great. All right. Hopefully. We'll see. Well, uh, can, can you, I suppose, tell us a little bit about your latest book that's coming out? Uh, Fortress Frontier. Yes. Um, I, how do I do this without uh, spoiling for folks who haven't read uh, Control Point. Um, suffice to say that I think a lot of people were expecting me to write Oscar Britton stories. Um, you know, that, that, that I think that there's, you know, with Harry Dresden, um, with Suki Stackhouse, there is a pattern with some authors that do mass market um, serials to take a character, stick to him, and have readers follow that character through the through the length of, of many, many novels. And that has never been my intention. I started out writing as a fan of ensemble casts, a, a lot of my favorite series, uh, The Demon Cycle by Peter Brett, uh, the First Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie, the a Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. All of these feature ensemble casts. Um, so in the second book, Oscar Britton is certainly a major character, but he is not the main character. And uh, the main character is Colonel Allen Bookbinder. And all. And in the third book, Breach Zone, there will be, again, a shuffling of points of view um, to try to give other characters more screen time. That's great. And it also gives you a chance to, I suppose, further develop each of the different characters as well. Sure, and to give myself a break, because, frankly, uh, you, can, uh, you spend a lot of time, and one person said you can get kind of sick of them. Yes, I, I definitely understand that. It, it, uh, for some writers, it makes them, you know, go into a whole different genre just to get away. Yeah. So. 
And well, I mean, look, I keep threatening to write romances. That's uh, that's something uh, something that's still on my radar. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I'm not quite sure whether you're joking with me there or not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I I uh, I, uh, I was told a while back that men cannot write romance novels. And men do write romance novels. And by this, I, I really think I mean category romance novels. There's, there's certainly different kinds. But they do it under female pseudonyms. And I think that that is grossly unfair. And I think that that is not okay. And I think that for years, women had to write science fiction under male pseudonyms. And that wasn't right. And when someone tells me that's just the way it is and that's the way the market works, my response is bullshit. And uh, I definitely want to break that barrier. Unfortunately, you can't just sit down and write a romance novel. It's a, it's a huge genre with a long history, and I have a lot of learning to do before I can write romance competently, competently enough to get, get in there. But I, I, one day I really do dream of writing a romance that's absolutely fantastic, getting some publisher to pick it up, you know, not knowing who I am, and say, wow, we're really excited about this. We're going to put all this money behind it, and we're getting ready to market it, and then go, surprise. I'm a guy, and if you still want to publish it, you have to, you have to publish it with me as a guy and forcing their hand. Mm. And, I, and I suppose even if even if a publisher doesn't publish it, that's what's so well. That's what I think is so good about about um, about self-publishing is that even that that you can avoid all of those stereotypical traps that yeah. are set up in traditional publishing. Yeah, I mean, and, and self-publishing is certainly something I would always consider. I've never, I've never poo-pooed it and turned my back on it. But at least thus far, it's really not for me. The thought of, of, of doing everything that's involved in making a novel really great, art direction, copy editing, and proofing, and, and, and font design, and cover design, and, and, uh, and, cre- and even creative editing, you know, either having to be a project manager outsourcing that to several different professionals at a great upfront expense is just exhausting to me. And uh, I, uh, I really hope, I, I certainly know traditional publishing is changing and that, and that self-publishing has become more and more of a financially viable option and may someday become the most financially viable option. But for now, at least, it's uh, something that I just, I don't want to do. What what are your thoughts on the digital revolution? Do you uh, use the internet to connect with fans? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, I I'm all over Twitter. I'm I guess blog frequently. I keep my own blog. I'm all over Facebook. I I post to Google Plus, even though there's three people on there. I uh, do these Skype interviews. I, I try to say yes to everything. I I really firmly believe that the internet is a great way to connect to fans, and I also believe that the real way that you curry interest in your work um, and, and get it out there is by helping fans develop a sense of intimacy with you and to help them feel connected with you. Try to answer every email I get. Um, but when you talk about the digital revolution, I don't know if that's what you're talking about or if you're talking about the proliferation of ebooks and the and the so- it's all encompassing. Yeah. All encompassing. Everything from connecting with people to ebooks to transmedia. It's all I, I classify all of that as a digital revolution. Yeah, and the answer is in the end, the only thing I can do is express befuddlement and bewilderment. I really think that no one knows what's going on or what's going to happen. And I actually wrote a blog post that was very popular called The Eighteen Rules of Writing. 
and they were actually nine sets of rules that were all complete opposites of each other. Um, and it was just sort of my way of saying, if you talk to 100 people, you get 100 different answers. And by the way, the 100 different people would be like pro-authors, pro-editors, pro-agents, like people in the industry who really know what they're talking about. Uh, but the truth is, is that I really don't think anybody really knows what they're talking about because it's all so new. You know, a perfect example is um, people always say, oh, you know, you use Twitter so well and, uh, and it's so successful, but I have no way of tracking how many books have been bought because of tweets I do. As of right now, I have 1,815 Twitter followers. I have no way of knowing if that's a lot. It's certainly more than some authors that only have, but there are authors that are much more popular than me that have less. And there are authors that are much less popular than, than me that have, you know, 5,000 Twitter followers because they are part of a follow-back program or because they write for a nonfiction magazine that's very popular. You know, the, the truth is, is that all of this is so new that we don't have the history to track it and see what it means and where it's going. And that's going to take years and years and years. Um, the only thing I can do is write the best stuff I can and hope that it gets out there and is appreciated and that people are willing to pay money for it. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good uh, philosophy, I think. Well, thanks. Uh, I, uh, when I come up with philosophies, I do strive to make them good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to believe in your own philosophies, otherwise well, I think it's you're just, not going to get very far. It, it, it isn't much of a philosophy. It's just a way of avoiding panic. I mean, it's so, <laughs> it's so easy. It's so easy when you're a traditionally published author like me to sort of sit here and go, oh, my God, you know, publishing's being decimated. It's all doom and gloom. Amazon's going to run everybody out of business. The price point on books is going to drop so low I won't be able to make any money. I'll be forced to self-publish, but then I'll be competing against, you know, a gazillion other people, and there'll be a horrible signal-to-noise ratio, and nobody will be able to tell what's good and what's not, and, and oh, woe is me. And, uh, and at the same time, I can also say, you know, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is a new revolution in publishing, and it's going to make it possible for me to do whatever I want whenever I want and to make myself rich. And the reality of it is, is that both are true and neither are true, and I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but more importantly, I don't really think anyone else does either. And, and that's the real thing, is because you have a lot of people speaking with great confidence about the demise of this or the rise of that. And, and I don't think that there's enough information or enough time passed for anybody to speak with any great confidence about what's going on. Uh, I do have uh, one final bonus mystery question for you, Mike. It's very serious. Okay. Very, very, uh, very fantasy scholarly, if you like. Oh, boy. Uh, okay. So you know how a normal gun, when you shoot somebody, it, it kills life. It, it destroys life. Right. So if you had a magic gun, and this gun, when you shoot a bullet, can destroy anything. So it's not necessarily life, but it destroys a something, whether it's ego, whether it's arrogance, whatever. You shoot it, and it destroys that thing. So what if you had a gun like that, what would you have it destroy? The column between the escalators at the Jacob Javits Center um, for New York Comic Con. Because when people try to leave that con, you have... 120,000 people trying to funnel into an escalator that's three feet wide. And if there was just a broad staircase, everybody could get in and out without 
going crazy and and me hating the people who I was just so happy to hang out with. How's that for a cop out answer? That no, that's fantastic. You're you're totally rearranging the landscape with your gun. I, I like it. I, I absolutely am, and it's and it, and because New York Comic Con is such a pivotal event in fandom, I am rearranging the landscape of science fiction and fantasy fandom. That's what I'm doing with that gun. I'm making real changes. I'm getting rid of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of a wall. And actually, knowing my luck, it would probably be load-bearing, and I'd bring the whole roof down. But let's not think about that. That's 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 a much more creative answer than mine would have been. I I, I confess that my answer to that was I would have a gun that would kill kill stupidity, because uh, I don't get along with stupid people. Um. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think uh, if I had a penny for every time I said or did something stupid, uh, I, I might I might run afoul of that gun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pass <laughs> on that. Yeah. No, I think I think one that changes the landscape is much more interesting. Sure. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mike, for for taking the time out to have a chat to us. No, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you.